you know, I think we all know that Hollywood knows how to make movies. Hollywood is, uh, they like to make movies that always end on a good note. Everything turns out nice. And there's something about that that we love. We do love happy endings. We do. I mean, I love seeing a happy ending. It's nice to see things reconciled, justice meted out. The bad guy gets put in jail. The good guy gets whatever he's trying to get. I mean, we like that, that when we watch movies and, and they don't end on a balanced note, the unrequited love or the, the justice that isn't reconciled, it leaves us with this sense of dissonance in our soul. We don't like it. I, I think the way God has wired us is we're bent to look for that perfect reconciliation. Now, you know, we're faced with this life that we live that, frankly, things don't end that way. There aren't a lot of Disney endings in life. I mean, there, there isn't this sense of justice is always meted out and reconciliation always takes place within relationships. Uh, people live long and happy lives all the time without trouble. That isn't the way it is. And, and, and so it's very discouraging. And I think people turn to others or they turn to themselves, or they turn to the government, and they look for help. And, and, and these, these people in institutions are just filled with pride and, and partial justice might be meted out. Conflict reigns. I mean, we're very disappointed. They do not serve us well. And I think that's why the idealist tends to be younger. The pessimist tends to be older. Why? Well, you've lived life long enough. It's, it's difficult and challenging. And it leaves us kind of wanting more. I think it's a good want. It's good that you want things reconciled. It's good that you want things balanced. It's good that you want justice served. I mean, I think that's what God has built that within us. And in fact, the only hope we have is in God to do this. Our passage today is promising us a great hope that in the end, nobody will hold a finger up to God. Nobody will question God. Nobody will wonder, boy, I thought it would end better. I mean, God is giving us a hope in this passage that is so palpable and, and serious, and yet joy-filled, that it is to carry us through the balance of this unreconciled, uh, often peaceless life. It, it, you know, he's introduced us to this Messiah. You know, we learned about him in chapter 7 in, in Isaiah. He's named Emmanuel, God with us. It's a child. That's, that's, God's confronting the world with a child. And then we learned in chapter 9 how this child is actually going to be a king because the government's going to rest upon his shoulders. And this government is going to be, uh, he's going to be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And this government that he's going to lead is now articulated in chapter 11. So he talks about the character of the king, and now he talks about the character of the king's reign or the character of the kingdom. And that's what we're going to learn about. I want to give you, I want to look at five different aspects of his reign. Five different aspects. This is what we have to look forward to. Some have come already to be established on this earth. Some will only be consummated when Jesus Christ returns. But I want you thinking, I want you thinking, this is the reign of the Messiah. And I want to hold it up against the reign of men and women and compare it. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 11, and I'll read the first 10 verses. Remember, this is a, in Isaiah, uh, there are often multiple fulfillments to many of the prophecies he makes. And so he speaks about this Messiah. We see much of it come to bear. 
and of course the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we see later uh, fulfillments, uh, or we will see later fulfillments, particularly this passage. Okay, in verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what, he see, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand over the adder's den. It shall not hurt or destroy my, in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. But it sounds kind of confusing there. So we're going to just walk through it very, very slowly to try to pull out all the, all the wealth in this text. I, I said to you that the Messiah will come and establish a reign. It was a promise made that we saw in Isaiah chapter 9. He's now giving us details to what does the reign look like. What will Christ's kingdom look like? Well, number one, I think you're going to see that the kingdom is marked by humility. Number one, it's marked by humility. Let me give you a little context for this passage. Uh, in chapter 10 at the end, God has said that he's going to judge Assyria, that power, that superpower to the east. He's going to judge them, and God says it like this. It's going to be an axe to the forest, just a single axe to the forest, and all the trees will be cut to the stump. They'll be laid bare. Assyria will be destroyed completely. And this actually happened in 609 B.C., Media, Persia, and Babylon all joined forces and destroyed Assyria, flattened the place. So, so God's judgment came true within 100 years of this prophecy. But in chapter 10, there's also the judgment of Israel, the judgment of Judah. And this judgment was likened to a tree getting chopped down again. You remember it in chapter 6 at the end of the chapter. And, and Judah is chopped down and a stump remains. Okay, so now we have this verse 1 where this, the difference between the forest of Assyria of stumps and the stump of Judah is that this stump has life in it. This shoot comes from the stump of Jesse. Isaiah is making a promise to us that he is, God is going to establish a new kingdom. He's going to raise up a new king and a new kingdom that will establish God's peace over all creation from the stump. Now, who is this shoot from the stump of Jesse? Well, of course, Jesse, if you don't know that name, Jesse is the father of King David, the, the, the greatest king of Israel. He's the father of King David. So what we're saying here is when you read, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, He's saying that there's going to be a son of David. Jesse is the father of David, and David will have a shoot, or a son will come forth. He'll be a new David. He'll be a greater David. 
and he'll lead, he'll lead a greater people. This shoot, by the way, is held parallel with this branch. Branch says the same thing. In fact, let me take you to Jeremiah. I'll read it for you, Jeremiah 23. Listen to the similarity in language. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So you get the impression, if you were to read Jewish writings at the time, they all understood the shoot, the branch, it was David's son. God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. He said, you're going to have a son, and your son's going to be different. He's going to inherit an eternal kingdom. He's going to be king over this thing forever, an everlasting kingdom. It's a unique promise they have been looking for. This is what Isaiah is picking up on. Now, why is this speaking about the humility of Christ's kingdom? Well, notice how they reference this coming Messiah. He's a shoot. What is a shoot? It's a sucker. You cut down a crepe myrtle, what do you have? You have suckers come to the ground. They're insignificant. They're unimportant. In fact, they're a pain, and they come right off. You snap them right off when they're young. He's speaking to the humility of this rain. It's just a shoot from a dead stump. Not only that, he's a son of Jesse. Who's Jesse anyways? Isaiah purposely doesn't refer to David because he wants to show you the insignificance, the, the commonness of this Messiah. He could have referenced David, and that would have given him some real value immediately. But Jesse, who knows Jesse? Jesse was in obscurity. He lived in obscurity. In fact, when David was king, a term of derision was saying, oh, you're just a son of Jesse. Nobody knows Jesse. In other words, the Messiah is going to come with the intentionality of great humility. Now, of course, they waited for this son of David to come, and he never came. Generation after generation after generation passed. When would the son of David come? Well, of course, when you go to the New Testament, what do you find? You find this Jesus who is called the son of David. And not surprisingly, he's born in a very humble way, isn't he? A, he's born as a baby. He doesn't come as a conquering king. Uh, B, he's born to parents who, though descendants of David, they couldn't even find a place in Bethlehem, the town of David. He lives in obscurity. He's a carpenter. He's a tradesman. That's all he does. He's not a, he doesn't have the pomp and the circumstance associated with royalty. His ministry is marked by humility, is it not? I mean, who were his followers? They weren't the up and coming. His followers were, were fishermen. They were tax collectors, prostitutes, women, children. I mean, it was ridiculous. He died with a degree of humiliation. I mean, with all the sin and, and, and shame piled upon him by God, even the scorn of those who he died for was thrown upon him. Jesus knew all this. I mean, this is why Jesus said, he, he spoke of his own humility. He said, come to me, all you are heavy laden and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am what? I am humble and gentle of heart. Jesus knew he was establishing a kingdom in humility. Think about, I'm sure in his mind was that prophecy in Isaiah 42 when he said, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. So gentle. Now, now just drop your minds quickly to today, really to the history of mankind. What kingdom of men and women is marked by humility? It's marked by power. It's marked by significance. It's marked by by the, you know, kind of the full-chested approach to life in the sense of, look at me, I'm strong, I'm powerful, I'm in a position. I mean, we are a culture that loves Hollywood, the, the mega entertainer. We love sports heroes. 
we, we, we love stars. We have stars in the evangelical church. We love stars. I mean, arrogance and self-sufficiency and pride and self-promotion are the language of the day. And, and here you have this Messiah, Jesus, who comes in obscurity and who comes with this massive degree of humility. Don't you find it attractive, though? I mean, don't you love humility? I, mean, I, I remember when we were in Michigan pastoring and the kids were at an uh, elementary school and uh, there was some function at the school where the principal was leading and there were probably five, six hundred people there. And well-dressed guy and a very good speaker, did a great job leading this, uh, this service, whatever the function was, I forget. But, but here's the point. After it was finished, uh, someone spilled something on the gymnasium floor and I see this guy in a three-piece suit, they used to wear those, uh, a three-piece suit, uh, begin to just mop the floor. He went and got the bucket, got the mop, and uh, started wiping the floor. I thought he could have called a custodian. So I'm, I'm up in the stands looking at him. He could have called a custodian. He could have asked one of the teachers. He could have done a lot of things, but he goes ahead and just begins to clean the floor. Everybody's just milling about him. I thought, i got to meet this guy. I mean, I mean, what a mark of humility. I was immediately drawn to him. Became friends, he came to the church, ended up joining the church. But just that, just that, that humility, there's something attractive and winsome about a kingdom of humility. This is the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. It's marked by humility. It's marked by a gentleness. In fact, Jesus said it in no uncertain terms. He said in, in Matthew 18, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Boy, that is a warning to us. Unless you turn. In other words, he's saying that we by nature move in pride and arrogance and self-confidence. And if you don't turn and enter the kingdom like a child, which is just a kind of a def- definition of humility, if you don't enter like a child, you won't enter at all. So, so there's this kingdom of humility that he has come to establish. Paul also said this in 1 Corinthians. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. That's the kingdom he's going to have. When we see him on that day, it'll be a kingdom of nobodies. I wonder how well all the superstars that have moved into the church have served the church. It's a group of insignificant, humble people. His kingdom is marked by a humility, a winsome, attractive humility. But don't let this cause you to think that it's a a weak kingdom. Look in verse 2 with me. In verse 2, we see that that this kingdom, his reign, is going to be marked by power. In verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, now just there, there's a sevenfold blessing that God promises on this Messiah to, to enable him and to empower him to accomplish all that God has his Messiah doing in setting up the kingdom. So there's a sevenfold blessing here. No man, no woman could bear the weight of this spirit. There's only has been one, and that is, of course, the Messiah Jesus. Now, you know at his birth, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
you know at his baptism. Look in, bapt- in Matthew chapter 3, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God, what? Descending on him like a dove and resting upon him. But not only that, when Jesus began his ministry in Luke chapter 4, the first synagogue he enters, here's what he does. He takes the scroll from the leader of the synagogue, he turns to Isaiah 42, and here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says that this text has been fulfilled in your midst. What bold arrogance. He's taking this promise in Isaiah 11 and 42, and he's saying, I'm the one that will have the Spirit rest upon me. Back to John chapter 3. It says, God gave the Spirit without measure to Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that the Messiah is endued with such power that God's very Spirit is filling him so that he can accomplish all that God has him to do? His reign will be powerful. You see it's marked. Look in the, the, uh, these little couplets. He says, he'll be filled with wisdom and understanding. That's kind of a word for discernment, that this Jesus, this Messiah, would have total discernment. He would really know what's going on. He would be able to read the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And if you read through the Gospels, you see this happens time and time again. He knows what they're thinking. They're not saying it, but Jesus knows it. Brilliant knowing the minds and the hearts and the motivations. It says, the spirit of counsel and might is given to him. In other words, the word for counsel has this idea of knowing what has to be done, but the, but the word might has the power to do it. A lot of us may know what to do, but we don't have the power. Maybe we have the power, but we don't really know what to do. But with Jesus, you're never caught in that contradiction. He has both the knowledge of what to do, and he has the power to accomplish it. Or you look at the, uh, he has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God, and in and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus loved to delight in God. He understood that, you know, to say the fear of the Lord is to know his glory and splendor. Jesus knows the beauty of God, the power of God, and so he delights to walk in glad submission and happiness. His obedience is never white knuckle. It's never, well, I got to do it because I'm supposed to. It was never one of those things. It was this being caught up with the greatness of God and recognizing, of course I want to walk in glad submission to him. Now, when, again, you look at This Jesus, he is alone fit to be king. Who else could lead a people, lead a kingdom? I mean, would you not be drawn to this kingdom? I mean, the humility of it, and yet the power of it. I mean, you you look at the kingdoms of the world. They want power, but they can't have all power. They may want wisdom, but none have full wisdom. I mean, we look to our government to protect us from danger and even to anticipate trouble. And they've got to fix that too. They can't do it. We're asking them to do things they can't. They're limited. It's a human kingdom. A human kingdom is limited in wisdom. They're limited in power. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to do it. They don't have the power to do it. But this kingdom, this kingdom led by this king has full wisdom. I mean, Jesus, he's never at a wit's end. He's never caught in that that crossfire of, well, should I do it or should I not do it? Like, when I have big decisions to make, I can kind of go into a catatonic state for a while. And Carol says, I just kind of go to my special place, and I just need to be there for a while as I try to figure this thing out. And, and, but he's never caught like that. He always knows what to do. He always has power to do it. 
In other words, this is a kingdom to which you want to belong. This is a kingdom that you're thankful to be a part of, that one day you'll see and understand is perfect and glorious wisdom, is might. It's a, it's, a, it's a good kingdom. But not just, it's not just humble and it's not just powerful, but it's also a just kingdom. It's a just kingdom. Look at, look at the uh, second half of three and four with me. He shall not judge but what his eyes see or decide, disputes but what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, n- notice this. It just quickly with me, think through our justice system. Okay, think about human justices. They do have to judge by what their eyes see, and they have to judge by what their ears hear. They're limited. That's all they can judge by. Uh, Their human judgment isn't perfect. It isn't full knowledge. Uh, They they don't know exactly all the situations that come up regarding the cases that come before them. Uh, They have to fight through their own selfish motives and their personal uh, prejudices. Uh, they're, They're limited in having the facts. They just don't know. And yet you have a king now who's going to judge with perfect justice. He doesn't judge by what his eyes see, and he doesn't judge by what his ears hear. Why? Because he knows all things. There's no cross-examination needed. There's no evidence needed to present. He knows it all. He knows the heart of every single... The justice that Jesus the Messiah will mete out will be perfect in every way. He won't be subject to people's position and power and authority to influence him. He doesn't need straw polls. He doesn't need surveys to determine anything. He knows it all. And he will move with perfect justice. This is to, this is to cause a longing in your heart. And not only that, but you see this justice meted out in verse 4. He says that he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, I don't think that means material poor. I don't think he's saying that, hey, all those who are poor in this life will now be rich in the next life. I don't think he's saying that. I think what he's saying is this. I think he's speaking about the spiritual poor. Those people who are absolutely in poverty over their sin and shame, and they're coming before God looking for mercy, they will be given righteousness. The meek coming forward, they will receive the earth. They will receive joy. In fact, I think this is what Jesus is saying in, in Matthew chapter 5, 3, when he says, Blessed are those poor in spirit, for they shall inherit. They shall inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, what happens is, I think he's not speaking to the, everybody here. He's speaking to those who really see themselves as spiritual beggars. They really see themselves as God is holy and he's great. And I've got nothing to bring to him but my sin. And they just appeal to God for mercy. It's like in Luke 18. If you remember the parable Jesus taught, he taught it against the Pharisees who were confident in their own righteousness. And Jesus says this Pharisee or this uh, tax collector comes up and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't even look at God. He, his eyes are down. He's beating his breast. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What does it say about that man? Okay, the Pharisee is, of course, close to the throne. He's close to the temple and he's saying, God, thank you. I'm not like all these other people. And he starts saying, I fast. I, I give everything. I give a tenth of all that I get. He's leaning on his own works, whereas the tax collector coming just says, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And here's what Jesus says about him. He went home justified, forgiven. It's the same justified, just. He will will judge the poor with justice. He will decide with equity. It's the same thing. But notice one thing about the justice of this Messiah. Look at the second half of four. He says, and with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. 
boy, I don't want to soften that. And I don't even want to speak a lot about it because next week we're going to hit that subject more in chapter 24. So if you read ahead now, you read 13 to 23, you're going to see God bringing judgment to all the nations and their unrighteousness. Just read it. There's 10 chapters of God bringing judgment to bear on these various nations. And then 24, he deals with the whole world. It's a very sobering passage. I would ask you to read it and read it with, with great prayerful and, and serious hearts. But, but here's what we have for you. It, it's a kingdom. He'll reign with humility. He's going to reign with, with power. He's also going to reign with justice. But, but what are you going to do when you stand before him? The one point about this passage is that when Jesus returns, everybody will stand before him in judgment. Every single person, man, woman, child, everybody will have their spot before him. What will you say? How will you survive? What are you trusting in? I mean, what will you bring to him so that he would find you acceptable? I mean, it's, it's a profound thought. And every one of us, it applies to us in the same measure. I want you to think about that. Because if, if you come, as many, you know, when I ask people and I say, well, if you were to die today and stand before God, what would you say? They'd say, well, it's a pretty good person. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't shoot anybody. I didn't rape anybody. And, and that becomes their, I guess, box of confidence before God, what they've done or what they haven't done. A lot of people go to, really, it's sad, a lot of us go to what we haven't done. We don't even go to what we have done. We just go to what we haven't done. And yet that will not, that will not hold. It's the Messiah that we're called to trust. I, I would encourage those of you, as you're perhaps concerned over this, to consider this Messiah. I mean, to come to faith in Christ. To, to, to kind of shelter yourself under his wing. And, and to come under his work to stand before God. First John, John says that he's an advocate for the sinner. He, he's a lawyer. He's our representative. He's our substitute. That's a day to come. You're living and breathing right now. You have time to think through these things. I, I know this seems almost, it almost seems like uh, like yelling fire in a crowded room. It almost seems unfair to do, but, but it almost seems unfair not to do, not to speak to these things to you and, and to gloss over them as if they're not going to be, as if it's going to all just shake out okay in the end. Okay, the, the fourth thing about his kingdom, and, and you love these verses, you've probably read them as a child, but, but it's going to be a kingdom of peace. Look with me at some of the language in 6, 7, 8, 9. It's a kingdom of peace. You know, so instead of the conflict and instead of the, the separation and the death associated with our world, look at the kind of peace that will be under the reign of Christ. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child should lead them. I, I mean, here you have these natural predators, right? You have the rule of long. You have the, the, the I should say, the law of tooth and claw, now just kind of mitigated by the presence of Christ, that, that they're lying together, that the hostilities that are natural to their relationship is now finished, and that Jesus is, is bringing things back to like an Eden type of position, if you will. You know how man was given authority over the animals? Well, now a child even has authority to direct the lion. 
I mean, a little child, he's showing us, Isaiah, the peace that will be here in the Messiah's reign will be beyond measure. In fact, it's even greater than that. Look at the next verse. He says, the cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. These carnivores are being changed to herbivores. They're now, they're now eating grass. Their natures have been adjusted and changed. But it's even more than that. Look at the next verse. It says that this, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. It's almost like back in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman is now reconciled to the seed of the enmity, of the serpent. Now, he's not reconciling us to Satan, but he's reconciling us even to the serpent, that all of God's creation is now reconciled and at peace with one another. And he tells us how this happens. Look in verse 9, he says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So you can imagine, seven-tenths of this world is covered by water. So as the oceans fill to capacity the seas, as water fills to capacity the oceans, so will the knowledge of God fill to capacity us. I think the knowledge of God is actually the gospel. And I think it's the gospel because how do we get from where we are, wanting Hollywood movies that end well, to this reign of peace? Well, what started the conflict? What started the separation? Well, clearly sin did. In Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the world through our first parents, and separation occurred, and death then came in. Creation you know, God cursing the man and woman, he curses creation, and then out of that comes the, the human dilemma, the problem that we have right now. Well, what will remove the curse? Well, the Messiah does. The Messiah removes the curse so that peace can reign again. And we see this clearly in Galatians. Paul interprets Jesus' role. He says this, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Do you see what's happened? The reason we have this reign of peace is because the Messiah has come, Jesus, and become a curse for us. He's taken upon our sins and shame and guilt, that which caused separation and death, and God punished them. He cursed them, and he absorbed the curse so that we no longer are under the curse. So we can now be readying ourselves for this reign of total peace where you'll be changed. The animals are changed. Do you think he won't change you? The twinkling of an eye says you'll be changed. I want to be changed. I mean, if the animals are changed, I want to be changed. I want to be changed, I, I want to be changed from who I am. The, the stain and the guilt and the history is going to be washed away. I won't be burdened by that anymore. The effect that sin has on us, even now as Christians, it won't be burdening us anymore. The conflict that we have in our homes. Every home has conflict. All you have to do is bring up Christmas or Easter. You know, I've got to be with family. And boy, that just brings in all kinds of untold histories, painful histories. There is great conflict. There's no more conflict. Can you imagine to be changed? That even if the lion can be led by a child, the hostility is just eradicated. So the conflict. And, and really, even the, um, I was thinking about this, the irritating idiosyncrasies that I have will be cleaned up. That, that I can only, one day, I'll be as nice as my wife, and it will be when I'm changed. But 
all of it will be changed. That's the hope we have. That's the draw. When you look at yourself and you always wonder, can't, there's coming a day. He will change all things for his glory. He says that we're changed from glory to glory now. It's true. But when we see him, what's it going to be like? We're going to be like him then. So it's a kingdom of peace. And then it, it last, his reign is going to be global. Look with me at verse 10. In verse 10, it says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In other words, in this day, Jesus, and partially fulfilled when he came, but fully fulfilled when he returns, in this day, he'll be a signal. He'll be like a lighthouse for ships to find safety in a harbor. That Jesus is a signal to the nations that with his arrival the first time and completing it in his second arrival, that God is doing a new work. He's reordering creation. He's marching it back to the way that God intends it. That's what Jesus has come to announce. He's a signal, and the nations are going to inquire of him. They're going to be drawn to him. That's what he's saying. But notice what he says here. I want you to see in verse 10, it says, In that day the root of Jesse. Look back at verse 1. In verse 1, he's called a shoot from the stump of Jesse. In verse 1, it kind of paints him that he's the Messiah coming from heaven among us to save us. But in verse 10, he seems to be the root system. He's giving life to the new people of God. That not only is he among the people of God, but he's giving life to the people of God. That in Christ, all the people will draw. That's why we're inquiring of him, because in him is life. And in him, we find this glorious rest, this rest. No longer will you cease striving against sin. No longer will you face the dilemmas and the struggles and the hardship that make this life so bitter and difficult for so many of us. No longer will injustice be just continue on. No longer will inequity be existing. There will be a glorious rest that he speaks about in Hebrews chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 20. This is the reign of the Messiah. It's going to be humble, it's going to be powerful, it's going to be just, it's going to be peaceful, and it's going to be global. That's what we have before us. So you look at this life, you want a Disney ending. Well, this is greater than a Disney ending. And this is what we have to look forward to. Now, for the non-Christian here, you're going to be facing the dilemmas in life as you go forward. It is just the way it is. Life is out of sync with God because of sin. You can trust in men, you can trust in governments, you can trust in queens, you can trust in princes. The reality of it is you will be disappointed. You can go to doctors, you can, you can work with attorneys, you can get pension plans, you can have all kinds of contingency plans, and many of those things are right and proper in their order. But everything will disappoint you other than this Messiah. And that's why Jesus came, of course. He came to give us hope. He came to call us to enter this kingdom that has such a glorious ending to it. Really, no ending. It'll go on forever. In fact, he says, when he started preaching, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe in me. Find your rest in me. Now, now for the Christian, and I encourage the non-Christian to consider these things. If you have questions, come forward after the service. I just want to leave you the question is, where is your hope going to be? And how can you assure me that your hope will actually be there when you need it? How will it support you? How will it sustain you? How will it take you beyond the pale of life into death? 
Now, for the Christian here, what do you do? What, so I've given you this picture of a consummated kingdom. I, I trust it's glorious for you. I trust it's hope-filled. I trust that you believe it. It is hard to believe it sometimes. It's just too good. It's almost too good not to believe, though, really. So, so what do you do? Well, let me give you some things to think about. I'm, I'm going to just rattle off a few things. If, if a few apply to you, great. Um, grab one or two of them. Maybe some of you can get more. But, but, but this is what I want you to think about, because I don't want to just hold up this. I, I feel like I'm holding up a model for you. This is the way it's going to be. So what should you do today? I don't want you to put the model on the shelf. I don't want you to put the idea on the shelf. The first thing I want you to do is the Christian rejoices over the humble beginnings of this kingdom. The Christian rejoices over small things. In other words, the world loves glitz and flair and numbers. But the Christian loves humble things, small things. The kingdom of God, Jesus likened to, a, um, to leaven. You know how you knead leaven in dough? You don't really see it work. It, it doesn't work like a balloon where you just fill it up with air and it fills up, but it slowly begins to change. Or Jesus likens the kingdom to a mustard seed, small seed, but turns into a big bush. Jesus even said that the kingdom of God will not come to you by careful observation. In other words, you can't study the kingdom, perhaps like a plant that just grows up right before you. The kingdom comes in small things. And so in this life, um, even when I look at my own spiritual growth, when I look at my life week to week or month to month, it's kind of unimpressive. There aren't a lot of changes. As I go back two or five or 10 or 20 years, I can see a lot of changes. Don't get discouraged over sometimes your lack of faith or lack of growth in the faith. Rejoice over the small things. For those of you struggling in marriage and you see that maybe you did talk or maybe you prayed once last week, it, you know, in Zechariah, says, don't despise the day of small things. Small things are good because small things that pile up become big things. Or when you look at the church and you wonder, well, what can we do as a church? We don't have 5,000 people. Don't despise the day of small things. God works in incremental fashion. That's why I love walking with non-Christians. I don't feel, I used to feel a need that if I got them in front of me, I had to preach the full gospel and call them to faith in Christ right away because they may die and then they're, it's my problem and it's my fault. And, and as I've grown in the faith, I've realized the joy of just walking with people through life and just sharing the gospel with them, both in word and deed, and allowing the Spirit of God to open up their hearts to these things. I don't need, I can let people grow incrementally. It doesn't have to happen every, you know, by a 10-yard leap. It can go yard to yard. As long as the changes keep moving, the Spirit of God will move it. So that's the first thing. Rejoice in small things. The second thing I would say uh, is stay near to Jesus in these days. You know, the world has all kinds of distractions. It offers you all kinds of things to entertain you. And, and I would say that in this time, waiting for his kingdom, you have to stay near to Christ. It, we found that in Christ is all things for us, right? In 1 Corinthians, we read this. He says, um, and because of him, that is because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, in Christ, we have all of God's wisdom. Why would you want to leave that? So feast on Christ. Ask Christ for wisdom. Ask him for his spirit to fill you with wisdom. In Christ, you have all things. See, the Christian faith teaches this, that for the believer, you are now united with Christ. That's why he pictures us like a marriage. We're now married to Christ. His assets are now ours. His resources are now ours. And so we begin to, we don't turn to the world for wisdom, we turn to Christ for wisdom and grace. 
We're appealing to Christ for these things. So stay near to Christ. Don't wander off and stray from Christ. In fact, John Owen said it this way. He said, how can we behold the glory of Christ? He says, we need, firstly, a spiritual understanding of his glory as revealed in Scripture. We've talked about that. Secondly, we need to think much about him if we wish to enjoy him fully. If we are satisfied with vague ideas about him, we shall find no transforming power communicated to us. But when we cling wholeheartedly to him and our minds are filled with thoughts of him and we constantly delight ourselves in him, then spiritual power will flow from him to purify our hearts, increase our holiness, strengthen our graces, sometimes fill us with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So stay near Christ. Thirdly, I would say the Christian wants to delight in the fear of God. Let me explain this. The world is bored with God. The world is bored with God. And the world delights in all kinds of pleasures that are at its disposal. The Christian delights in the fear of God. What I mean by fear of God, as I explained earlier, is as you begin to unpack and unwrap the glory and the splendor of God, you begin to gain knowledge of God. And in the knowledge of God, you begin to reverence him. And your life begins to meet itself out in obedience that is engendered from his glory. It's not a fear-based obedience. You can't look at God and not be impressed. I mean, everything you see that you're attracted to in this world, he's made it all. So he has to be far better than anything you're now currently enjoying. If, he, if you love a painting, would you not love the painter? If you, if you love the creation, shouldn't the creator be greater? And so as you begin to think about the fear of God, all of his glory and splendor, it brings us to a glad submission to walk in his ways. We don't cheat with grace. We don't say, I can do that because I got grace. No, we want to walk in the ways of God because his ways are great and our joy is tied up in them. We want to think about that, to not rest in grace, but pursue delighting in the fear of God. Um, Fourthly, I start losing it towards the end of the list. Fourthly, uh, we want to be concerned for the nations. You know, you, you saw that in verse 10. Thankfully, we have the nations among us here in our sanctuary. We're serving the Koran. You, you know, the, the world tends to be centered on itself and, and kind of centered on their ethnic group. Are we concerned for the nations as a church? Now, I think we are meeting some of it out by the Koran ministry that we have. Uh, but, but what about you personally? You know, um, we have this class engaging in missions that, that uh, Nick is leading right now. Eight people are in it. And they're just reading through missions works in terms of what is mission about? Is it about digging a well for people who need water? Well, that could be a help. But it's really about declaring the glory of Christ to the nations because all the nations are going to inquire of him. And they're going to inquire of him through our preaching and through our declaring of the gospel. So where is missions in your heart? There is a time here, you know, John Piper has said that missions exist because worship doesn't. When worship is spread out as the oceans cover the sea, missions will no longer exist. So missions is on a short leash. It's only for this season of life until Christ returns. We want to be concerned for the nations. Uh, but then, and then last, the Christian is longing for the day. I, I'm wanting to remind you that the greatest day, you know, so the world looks backwards at the good old days, right? We kind of, where nostalgia kind of clouds up our view as to what it was really like. You know, they had it as difficult. They had challenges like we do. 
But the Christian doesn't look back to the good old days. He looks forward to the days that are coming. That we want to long for these days. In fact, John Calvin said this about it. He says, he says that um, the only way that we could really bring things into perspective in this life is to remember our home is in glory. In other words, if you don't keep that in view, you will have trouble understanding the issues of life today. You definitely won't be able to make sense of trials and tribulations without that day in view. If you try to go through this life without longing for that day, you, you don't have a prayer. You don't have a prayer. You cannot understand who God is facing the difficult trials in our life apart from the day. That day makes everything make sense. We want to think about it. We want to ponder it. You are pilgrims, people. The Christian is a pilgrim. The pilgrim is not distracted from the end point. He is directed. He's thinking about it. He's moving towards it. The, the pilgrim is, loves to ponder that day. He loves to think about that day when, will, when he will behold, as Preston played, when he will behold our Lord. And he'll stand before him face to face. And we will be changed. And our relationships will be perfect. And the pilgrim doesn't get distracted on the journey pondering. And here's the other thing. The pilgrim doesn't grieve at the end of the journey. You know, too many Christians, they're clinging on to life like they don't know what they're dropping off to. The, the, the pilgrim doesn't grieve the end of the journey. The pilgrim's looking forward to it. One theologian wrote this. I love this. He says, the hope of dying is the only thing that keeps me alive. Well, think about it. Is that unbelievable? The hope of dying is the only thing that keeps me alive. Folks, we are unique in this nation to be as comfortable as we are and affluent as we are. And so we actually become not pilgrims, but become dwellers. And we think, hey, this place is working out pretty good for me. This is my father's home. I like this home. But it's the hope of dying that keeps me alive. And if you and I lived in different contexts, guess what? That day would be a great day. And you'd think about it. And you think, every night when you go to bed hungry, wouldn't you think about that day and the banquet and the feast and being fed by him, being clothed by him, having your feet washed by him? So, so, so there is much we can do in this life as we think about it. Thinking about the day doesn't make us earthly and useless. It makes us useful and productive. So, so, <clears throat> so think about these things. Let's turn to prayer now and, and ask God for help. I, I'm going to ask you to do this, and um, please uh, heed these instructions. I want us to pray corporately. So when we, let, let's just for today, let's pray corporately. Let's think about the body, the church here, and how, how this day looms before us and how we can live for it. Let's pray faithfully. In other words, God, this day is before us. We want to pray believing, and, and I want to pray thankfully. Thankfully that this is ours, that he has given to us, to encourage us. It, it's, you know, we're in the hole, but it's the rope we're hanging on to right now that's going to lift us out of the hole. And uh, I'll start, and, um, and then a brother will close us in prayer. Uh, Father God, thank you for your grace and mercy to us in this, in this teaching, uh, written so long ago, and yet we have seen it be established in the ministry of Christ. Thank you. Father, would, would you cause us as a church, collectively, corporately, together, uh, to see in Christ, who has brought about this kingdom, that we would find in his coming, in his death, and in, in his resurrection, a great confidence 
that this day will be ours. We pray this in the name of Jesus.